Hi, I'm Angie Pontani, the burlesque superstar who has spent the last 20 years shimmying and shaking around the globe. I've performed in showrooms, ballrooms, small rooms, and big rooms, every room except a mushroom. Along the way, I've met some amazing people, and I'd like to introduce them to you. Together, we will pull back the curtain to reveal what really happens behind the glitter, feathers, and tassels. So join me for the bump and grind. Wow is all I can say about today's guest. He is a legend and one that we rarely hear from. Producing and creating burlesque shows in New York City since 1991 with some of the earliest dancers from the revival, like Amy Goodhart and Billy Madley. Some call him Dutch Wiseman, an elusive character that drives the through line for so many of his productions and shows. But I know him as writer, director, and producer Tony Mirando. Growing up in the theater and Hollywood under the wing of his makeup artist father left its mark on Tony, fueling a never-ending creativity and drive to stage shows that match that level of passion that you feel the first time you step backstage or stand in the wings of a glorious theater. Tony is a genius. And for me, this interview holds an even deeper meaning than where he falls in the history of the burlesque revival and his place in the legacy of this movement. For me, Dutch Wiseman's is the reason that I got into burlesque. At 18, I trotted up the steps to Tony's loft to audition as a dancer in the show. And that moment, everything I learned, the people that I met being a part of Dutch Wiseman's, this changed my life forever. It set my course for an amazing career in burlesque and entertainment, traveling the globe, performing in so many spectacular productions and tours and shows and TV shows and film. But yet, I can still say, without the slightest dot of hesitation, that Dutch Wiseman shows were the best shows that I have ever been in. So sit down and get ready to get into some real burlesque history replete with mobsters, raids, evictions, and even showgirls cleaning toilets as I chat with my forever friend, Tony Mirando, or should I say, Dutch Wiseman. I'm so excited to see you, and I'm so excited to have you on the Bump and Grind because it's like we're winding down the season and I'm like, I was, I don't know why I haven't thought of speaking to you sooner. It's like right in front of my face and you, you are kind of like this rare mythical like unicorn of burlesque and neo burlesque and you rarely do interviews. You rarely talk about it. You rarely, you know, yeah. get into the whole I, thing. Uh, I, the, the thing that is having moved, I lived in LA for a while, um, went back to New York for a short time. And then, uh, because of some personal family issues, I came back to Indiana for God. And this was uh, 2003. I think I came back for two weeks on my way back either to New York or LA and two Ladies who I was in first grade with, who I've known that long. Wow. Said, why, they said, why don't you just stay here? Move back here. And I said, I wouldn't move back to fucking I'm not for And that was the first bottle of wine. Yeah. Second bottle of wine, they said, 
No, seriously, stay. It's like, I've lived in Paris, I've lived in Berlin, I lived in New York, Los Angeles. Why would I live here? Third bottle of wine, I was like, you guys, how could I live anywhere else? <laughs> and then we and then we had a bourbon, and it was like, I'm home, this is great. Yeah, okay. you're like, I literally <laughs> can't leave right now. <laughs> exactly, it's been 17 years. Wow, do you miss New York? Do you miss cities? Because yeah. you're so city. Yes, I do, desperately. I desperately do. Um, I'm 90 miles from Chicago. Okay, that's not bad. And you know Judith? Yes, of course, Judith from Swing 47. Yeah, yeah. Well, she has a sweet little restaurant, kind of European, in Oak Park. So I, before the COVID thing, I was there a lot. Wait, now, does she still own and operate Swing 46, or is that gone? No. Uh, uh... Someone bought that from her. Okay, okay. It's been a long time yeah. since I've been out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she has a restaurant in Chicago called The Little Gem in Oak Park, which is really I love sweet. Oak Park. Yeah, I mean, and that's where I hang out. I now have friends in Oak Park. And then um, she's expanding next door. Um, so I go to Chicago. I Not for a while. Yeah. But... Um, so I did that. I haven't been to New York in ages. I haven't been to LA in ages. And the weird part of it is being Notre Dame is here. Notre Dame University. In fact, within 25 miles of where I live, there are seven universities. So there are people around. But it's there's no city center there is no city no but at least you have the energy of people coming through and different kinds of people and the college towns create an energy that resembles cities slightly it's like a foe well yeah resembles yeah i mean but it's not you know it's not walking down 57th street it's not you know it's not the city it's not la well nothing is, is I mean, they're just, and now since it's been so long and those cities have changed so much, you know, I'm almost like. uh, Oh God. Oh yeah. Well, New York has changed so much. It's insane. And I, I want to get into a time machine with you and I want to travel back to the nineties. Oh, I can feel my wrinkles going away. You don't have any wrinkles. Like, oh, yeah, I have a couple. But I was thinking about this. And so you you created Dutch Wiseman, which was really, I feel, the first neo-burlesque review, um, certainly yeah. in its class and of its kind. But you are kind of Dutch Wiseman. And this was in the 90s. We met. I was in your show. It was my first foray into burlesque. I was 18 years old. Like, I literally <laughs> still had high school notebooks. That's so crazy. <laughs> God. Oh, my Lord. Isn't that insane? Like, I was a child. You were 18, and I had an illegal car. I was 18, illegally working in your illegal club that was in your illegal apartment. (laughs) In that lock, and I had no certificate of occupancy. I had no crowd license. I had no liquor. It was totally, totally... Illegal. But what you did have was magic and, and lots of it. Like I like yeah. eight billion years later, I'm still like that was the best show I was ever in, and I've been in a lot of shows now. It's like so you I remember the first time I walked into your apartment, I was working at a coffee shop with Alessandro Magagna, who was one of the dancers in your show, 
And he yeah. said, you have to come in, um, see this show and audition for it. And I was like, I'm not a great dancer. And Ale was like, just come down and see it. And I remember like everything from walking up the staircase to the girl who was the cocktail waitress. She had a champagne bottle on her head. It was <laughs> yeah. these narrow banquettes that you built in your railroad apartment. And I was like, I'm getting in this show if I have to kill for it. And luckily I got in, but what, there's so much there, but how did you come to stage this show in your apartment? We'll start with that. Well, actually, it, it was a loft. I mean, we'll give it that much. But um, your bedroom was in the back. <laughs> and that became the dressing room. Yes, I remember. <laughs> I had to wall it up. That was the dressing room. And you had the um, kitchen off the side of the stage, too. Yeah, all of that. The lighting booth was a closet that I stood in. Um were you in Die Stripper Die? Um, I was. I think I came right after Die Stripper Die. I started in '95. Um, okay, yeah. I think 95. it was right. I have postcards from Die Stripper Die, but I don't okay. think I was in Die Stripper Die. But tell me about Die Stripper Die. Here's how this goes. 1991, I moved to New York, and I did not know too many people. I'd been working at Disney, and um, left Disney very unceremoniously. Um, and I worked for Dan Melnick, who was the chairman of the board of Columbia, Warner Brothers Pictures. And one morning at seven o'clock, I went in. He wasn't supposed to be there till nine. The office was open. The hallway to his office was open. The coffee in his office was open. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be, this is not going to be a good day if he's here two hours early. And I walked in and you walk down a hall, and then you, there's a left, and that becomes the room. And Bob Fosse was sitting there. Wow. And reading Variety. And I, this all ties to how did I get to New York. And I looked at him, and I said, my God, you're Bob Fosse. And he goes, uh, yes, and you would be. And he just kind of went back. He just dismissed me. And I said, uh, my name's Tony. I have to ask you one question, I'll leave you alone. And he went, what? And I said, in Kiss Me Kate at MGM, Arthur Freed produced Kiss Me Kate. I said, and from this moment on, it goes into halftime. And Carol Haney has come around a corner, slides across in a split. You come around a pole, land in a split, stand up, lift her for an around the world when it goes halftime. And like, bomb, bomb. I said, that sequence, was that a birthday present to you to choreograph that from Arthur Free? Can I cuss? Yeah. Oh, he goes, who in the fuck are you? Oh. And I said, it, I said, was that a birthday present to you to choreograph that sequence? I said, because you two had done it on Broadway. When And he goes, sit down. Sit down. We talked for 45 minutes and talked about theater, talked about choreography, talked, and he goes, you know more about choreography than dancers. He goes, what's your favorite your favorite piece of choreography? I said, Lonesome Polecat from Seven Brothers for Seven Brothers. I said, Michael Kidd. He said, those were real axes. I said, I know. I said, they great dancers. So we talked for 45 minutes, and it kind of changed my life. Dan Melnick, who is it? 
comes in and he look he, they've just done all that jazz when yeah. my boss was there. And Melnick looks at, he goes, Hi Bob, there's a Japanese term called losing face, which is humiliation. You've lost your face. And Melnick comes in and goes, Hi Bob, and he looks at me and goes, You, what the fuck are you doing in my office? And I said, I, well, I was talking with Bob, and he goes, Mr. Fawcett, get out of my office. Get out. And I started to melt in humiliation. Oh, Literally. no. And Fawcett reached over to shake hands with me, and he put something in his hand, my hand, and he goes, listen to your boss. Get the fuck out of here. <gasps> no. Because what he had said to me earlier is, New York, Paris, Berlin, London. What the fuck are you doing in LA? Get the fuck out of here. So what he said was, listen to your boss. Get the fuck out of here. That's amazing. Right? So he, and I, I, I kind of jumped. And I walked out, and it's a phone number in New York. Within four months, I had liquidated, and I moved to New York. I lived by Central Park, and I sublet an apartment. This loft became available. I borrowed some money. I got a loft that you knew. and. In the interim, I called Fawcett. I didn't know anybody. And one afternoon, I called Fawcett. And I was <laughs> on the Lower East Side. And I called, and the secretary said, he's at the Bluebird Cafe on Columbus Circle. And I said, I know it. He said, she said, he's going to be there for about 20 minutes. And then he's going into recording. And I said, okay. She goes, 20 minutes. I hung up the phone, and I ran Lower East Side. The Upper West Side, through traffic, pushing people out of the way. I mean, I was having a heart. And literally, when I got to the Bluebird Cafe, I, my heart, I was sweating. I was like, I couldn't breathe. I literally couldn't breathe. And I see him sitting there, and I fell into the booth, and I said, I'm having a heart attack. I'm having a heart attack. And he pulled a cigarette out of his mouth, and he put it in my lips, and he pushed the coffee over, and he said, here, this will take care of that. Oh, no. So... We talked for a few minutes. Um, he said, I'm recording, I'm directing some stuff. He said, you've got my number, stay in touch. He said, I'm going to be busy for a while. I said, okay. He said, but I'm glad you called and I'm glad you left. And then it wasn't long after that, that I was walking past one of the newsstands and I saw that Fosse outside of the Washington Theater in Washington, D.C. on the opening night of the revival of Sweet Charity had had a heart attack outside the theater and died. No. And I looked at I looked at the headline and it's like it, I felt this personal like, geez, wait a minute, I was counting on you. Yeah. But the other but the other thing was Died? But I was in New York. Yeah. So I had written a play called Die, Stripper, Die. I talked to a couple of people and I started staging backwards auditions in the loft. And I staged, I did the whole thing. I mean, I did sets, costumes. Did you feel in a sense that you, wait, Tony, did you feel in a sense that you were like fueled by Fosse now that you had, like he saw something in you, he saw a spark in you. Like, did you feel that that kind of like spiritually fueled you to be like, okay, I I have to do this thing. This legend, this man, this God was like, do this. I have to do this. 
he told me to leave New York. I left New York. I was there. He died, and I'm in New York, so I was where I was supposed to be. I really felt that. Yeah. And I felt he, I felt that, you know, that he kind of is the, not kind of, I mean, that gave, when, when I knew that, when I made the decision to move to New York, it's like, I am going to move to New York. I know one person. Get out of I LA. Bob Fosse. I know Bob Fosse. That counts as I don't a know like Bob Fosse, but I could call Bob Fosse, yeah. right? Bob Fosse is not one person. That's like, I know Bob Fosse. I know everybody. <laughs> oh, God, that's an amazing story. And it's so New York and it's so 90s that you're like, you're not texting him. His secretary is like, not call. You are like running to get there. You're working for it. Oh, oh, I believe me, I did. Well, I did Die Stripper Die and Bob Gregory, who you know. Yes. I was doing these backers auditions and there were musical numbers in it. And it was a murder mystery. And. Bob and Catherine, and I can't think of her last name. Her husband was the ambassador to the belt. The three of us were friends. We had just met. And Bob said, my advice is drop the dialogue, stage a review, and start doing reviews. I said, nobody's doing reviews. Nobody's doing reviews. There's no, why would I do a review? He said, start staging review numbers. Because you know them. Because my father had taught theater at Notre Dame, Indiana University. I knew the books. I knew theater. I knew musical theater. I knew the history of all of these different theater forms. And is that because that was just something that appealed to you growing up? Like, I mean, what was your inclination towards that style of entertainment? My father, when I was nine years old, took me to the, it was a brand new theater at Indiana University. And he took me there. We went to Fly Space. We went in the orchestra. We did everything. And... We were there for like way up in the fly space. Beautiful, beautiful theater. The orchestra bit up and down. And I'm like nine years old. And and when we were done, we're sitting in just my father and I sitting in the theater, he said, He said, What do you think? And I said, I can't leave the theater. And he said, They are rehearsing, practicing a play, a theater piece by Moliere, a French playwright, and you're staying for the rehearsal. And I said, no, you don't understand. I can't ever leave the theater. And my father said, kid, I just fucking for life. And I knew then that it was theater. When I came to New York, and I'd done theater, you know, before that, but when I came to New York, you know that thing when you see Broadway lights and the overhead lights and chaser lights and theater and all, regional and just a theater off oh, of yeah. Broadway, you see all this stuff. I mean, it's that thing, and it's... it's you know, for some people, it's going to Dodger Stadium. For some people, it's going to Yankee Stadium. For us, it's like just walking oh, through yeah. Schubert Alley. That totally. You, get that, you know? The sounds of, of a I, show about to start are like the most magical thing. It's just like, Yeah, and the lights go down. Oh. Every so I had written this play called Die Stripper Die right after I went to Disney. I was there for a year. I stayed in L.A. It wasn't quite a year, but I had written a play while I was at Disney when I left. That's what I brought to New York. And I did the backers auditions for it. That's why I did Die Stripper Die. And I met some I met Bernadette there. I met Billy Madley there. What was Bernadette's Amy. what was Bernadette's last name? Because didn't she dance like in the French Quarter or she like I have Bernadette vague Brooks. memories of her. Bernadette Brooks uh was she became the Duchess. Bernadette Brooks um, stripped on 57th Street in the jazz clubs, 
when stripping was stripping. When it was like, it was that, it wasn't bump and grind, but it was peel. Yeah. And and Bernadette stripped in a couple of the jazz clubs, and Bernadette was a broad man. I mean, she was... Oh, I remember. She, like, she made quite I mean, an impact was, on me. She made quite an impact on everybody. I mean, she was... <laughs> But she was so, she was elegant. Oh, extremely. Very low-key and very elegant. And um, um, while she was stripping, working in these clubs, she also sang, and I want to say, Harold Arlen, the composer, Yip Harbor, one of the composers of one of the big shows, said, had come into the jazz club, saw her work and said, why aren't you auditioning for musicals? And she said, I'm not really a singer, and I'm not really a dancer. And I want to say it was Harold Arlen said, you may not sing and you may not be a dancer, but you got it. You're this gorgeous, statuesque redhead. Yeah. You move like a cloud and mouth the words. Can I set up some auditions for you? And she's like, yeah, what the hell, set up some auditions. So she would audition, and she'd get the roles in the chorus. And then she kind of got, like, a little dance part. And then she'd get, like, a little featured bit. And she did Broadway shows. Amazing. Um, yeah, I think she's not with us anymore. I, 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 yeah, because she was quite, she was a bit older at that time. She was. One day, one day when the girls... The girls, the first, the first Wiseman crew, when they were peeling, I'll say, she, um, she was looking. She goes, "It's not how you do it." <laughs> and it was like, "Oh well, how do you do it?" And she said, "Tomorrow I'm going to show you." And she came, and she had one of the costumes that I had for Dicer for Die was this Kelly Green robe with a full skirt, satin lined in lime green. And and she told me to hit the music and it was uh, uh, Al Hibbler, After the Lights Go yeah, Down Low. of course. She said, when I say hit it, hit it. And I said, okay. And she, that little stage that I had, mm-hmm. and she's backstage and she goes, hit it. And I, all of a sudden you're like, after the lights go down low, baby, you know. Yes. Um, one hand comes from a curtain, she goes, there'll be no reason for teasing me so. And her hands come between the curtains, oh. and there's Bernadette, and there was like six of us, and our jaws hit the floor, and she comes out, and she had this red hair, and she just kind of looked, and she just kind of like put her hand across, she's kind of pointing at us and stuff, dropped the shoulder, dropped the shoulder strap, put it back, put her foot on a chair, Dropped the silk stocking. Went, oh, no, no. Pulled it back up. Dropped the robe. She's got bustier and the garters and the hoses. Does that, undoes the, oh, I'm going to undo the, I'm going to undo this. No, I'm really not. Because you're not going to see it. Not yet. And she did the most classic. We were crying. We were literally, we were crying. We were like, we were just like, what? And she goes, it's about the tease. Not Show she goes, that's what you do. And she taught girls how to strip. She taught everybody, you know. And she she um she she became like the 
I don't want to say the house mother. She'd slap me if she heard me say that. Mm-hmm. But but she was she was a guiding force of the era. Um, and this was again ninety one. Yeah. Ninety two, even ninety three, I guess that she was there and she made her presence known. Um, I, I was in touch with her a few years ago. I think she's gone. Um, but the girls, I was very lucky that the, and okay, it's 2020. Do I say girls, women, strippers, dealers? There's so many choices of politically <laughs> incorrect words. Um, the performers. There you uh, go. The, the performers, uh, female performers, and the male performers that came, as you know, Alessandro, who is now with Labyrinth in the Kitchen yeah. Theater. I mean, Alessandro is a director and actor, a legitimate, and he's real. Tente was from Madrid. Oh, Tente. Um, oh, Tente was such a beautiful dancer in the show. And Tente's partner at the time was James Caliardos, who was one of the founders of V Magazine that years later I've crossed paths with in Lady Gaga dressing rooms because he does her makeup. And I'm like, James? He's like, Angie? I'm like, what? (laughs) But see, that's what we didn't realize then, who some of us would turn into. Um, Who else came out of there? Two of the girls, two of them ended up in Rockette, the Rockettes. Wow. Um, well, and I know M- Michelle uh, Suzuki, who was a Wiseman girl, hasn't she gone on to become like a big fancy ballroom dancer? Actually, Michelle and I communicate weekly. Um, I mean, still. Amazing. And, and, no, I mean, Michelle was one of my, my close, close But close didn't she go on to do like some major ballroom? She became, she's, she is a world-class, award-winning, top-of-the-line tango dancer. Amazing. And rather to see her perform. Um, you know, Billy Madley had her shows going. Amy Goodhart is now an award-winning, no-kidding costume designer. She got the big award. She she called me the night after she won the award two years ago. She got best costumer, not for film, but it's for it's for like commercial advertising something. An, an award. It's like a Gala yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And, and she got called for the, and the winner is Amy Goodhart. And her friend she was with said, Go on, I just want you to, what? She goes, Go up again. She said, And I was prepared. I was in a gorgeous gown. I had my notes. She said, I went up on stage and I started crying because I was so shocked. She said, But I'm looking at Jane Fonda, Ellen Burstyn, and Meryl Street going, Amy, Amy. Amazing. Like, she said, Yeah. She said, They came backstage after. So Amy's like the big gun costumer. No, you um, had you amassed an amazing crew, and so Amy and Billy, like, because they were so iconic in that time. Like, oh, I, yeah. I think of the, like Amy, like Amy's just ridiculous. Like, she's like this dance time capsule, and she helped me so much because I was not the best dancer when I came into that room, you know. And she really took time and and helped me so much, but. They both embodied just, you know, it's one thing to take burlesque and recreate it, and then it can become cheesy, and it can be, hey, big spender. But it's like everybody in that room, there was, uh, they had the correct amount of irony. It was sincere. It was not contrived. It was not like, you know, 
cheesy. It was so authentic. And so. Well, everybody did research. And, and I had that wall of books of everything from Billy Watson's Beat Trust Chorus from 1850 in London, all the way, any book on the history of burlesque, strip theater, musical theater, Minsky's, of, of the uh, uh, blackface, of all of that. And, and so people were reading the books and were just like, can we do this number? Well, I have to find the music for something from 1875. Uh, do you remember Otter? Yes. Who was dangerous. Yes. Otter. Yes. God, it's <laughs> all coming back to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Otter, one night, she took a book and she came back and she said, all I'm going to say is, Give me, I want to do it Saturday night. Give me a blue backlight and something pink, a wash in front. That's all I'm going to say. What are you going to do? I'm not telling you. Just when I tell you, when it's my turn, just do it. I'm like, okay. And her cue comes up, and it was bird in a gilded cage. Bird in a gilded cage, something like that. And she came out on stage absolutely naked. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Just absolutely naked. And the entire peel was in reverse. And by the time she left, she had high button shoes, pantaloons, a bustier, a Victorian gown, an umbrella, a bag. And she hit this Gibson girl pose. Amazing. And that's when I faded the blue light. So it's just a silhouette of black in this blue. And she had done this beautiful peel in reverse and because she had read and looked through the book so i mean the people that that were drawn there yeah you know uh who was that brilliant guy and i can't think of his name was also from spain um he in la did the tango oh um, yes 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 that tango you know was I mean? so i can hear the music <laughs> i can like hear it like with this with the switchblade. Yeah, and the they cigarette. were so beautiful. But so you start with a... Die, Strip, or Die. You're doing yeah. the Backers auditions in your apartment. How does this one show then turn into like a multi year, I'm, I'm going to call it an empire, but like this empire of entertainment and the arts and like burlesque and so much coming together? Like you start Die, Strip, or Die. How does it end up in your apartment? I know you were doing the Backers auditions, and I remember we were told if we get raided, you tell the cops this is a backers audition. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I got raided. I know. <laughs> I got I got bad raided and I talked my way out of it. How did it happen? Like how did you end up in the apartment like saying this is this well, is it the was, spot? This loft, this loft um, was big enough that I could it was eighty feet long and fifteen feet wide. And it was two thousand a month over Mr. Mr. Wu's, yes. Mr. Ho's Chinese restaurant, and he hated me. Um, and until he saw the show, and so I started doing reviews, putting reviews together on Bob's. And Bob's Bob was smart with what he said to do. Bob was very smart to say that, and um, so I started doing backward auditions for the review. And I couldn't pay my rent. And some of the, I'm not, I, I won't use any names, but most of the female performers at that time in 
Wiseman's in the lot on 23rd Street would come over after performing and open their little purses and drop hundreds and thousands of dollars of bills on that table. And, you know, I worked seven hours and all I made was $1,500. You know, what do I need this for? I mean, that's, right. that's and I'm like, you made that for a night. And it's like, yeah, I know. I should be making twice that. So I'm seeing all these piles of money, but I'm like, but I'm trying to do theater and I broke and they go, oh, honey, here. And they like throw money at me to try to keep going. Yeah. So that we could do the backers audition so I could pay my rent. Um, I ended up moving to 18th Street, trying to do it there. Freddie Gaman, who was Madonna's agent, a friend of his saw it. They flew me to Beverly Hills to meet Freddie, to pitch Die Stripper Die as a film project for Madonna, who I met that day, who was in a salmon-colored sweater of black a-line skirt, black heels, black hose, red hair, and I literally, I, I gasped, <laughs> I gasped, and she was, she was just like, "What a pleasure! I've heard so much about this." Oh, and I said, and I said, actually, no, you haven't, but I've heard a lot about you. Yeah, and she said, "Yes, I'm sure you have." Let me introduce you to Freddie, and we talked with him, um, and it didn't work. That closed. The, that Wiseman closed after much history and much couple of raids and and the Wiseman on 18th Street closed. Um, and that's when we started doing, oh God, we where did we played all these clubs in New York? We played the Roxy, we played Limelight, we played the Saint, we played all these different, we do like uh, uh, Grey Gardens. Yeah. Uh, Jackie's 60. We'd be invited guests to go, you know, perform there um, and then go to like the supper club as guests of and be served because all the girls were in black covered in diamonds and, and everything was so cool and, and so the whoever the promoters were would bottles of champagne I mean it was just that was still part it just kept Oh, oh yeah. No, well everybody was so I mean it was so different, right? So this is the 90s in New York. It's like the scene is not like walking glitter bombs in like long gloves and like, you know, freaking Marilyn Monroe hair walking around and making this scene and like it was so different from what was yeah. happening in these clubs, even in like the nice clubs, like 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 the yeah. limelight where people would get dressed up, but they weren't dressed up like that. No, and the thing that is the numbers that we did, like I said, I was recreating, and Amy was instrumental in this. She could choreograph it, but I, the numbers that Wiseman were, the production numbers were always production numbers from like the Girl Hunt Ballet for the Bandwagon with Fred Astaire and uh, uh, uh part of the American Paris in Paris Ballet. From this moment on, from Kiss Me Kate. Um, um, it was numbers from musicals and numbers from Broadway shows. I did a couple of things from um, Bill Silver's Do Re Mi. Um, I can't think of the number. I would I would stage numbers from classic older Broadway shows. Yes. Reviews from Paris and London. Um, 
and Amy would choreograph them, and nobody is still doing that kind of music. It was the music. Behind that curtain one night, Amy and I came up with this number where we put a, an old turntable from record player on one corner of the stage, backlit it, and put a silhouette of a sax player glued to the turntable, put it on slow, <laughs> yes. and she came out. And at one point, while she's in this top hat and this cane, and she's doing it with an Ellington piece, and at a certain point, I hit the remote, and the turntable started. You'd see this this saxophone player, kind of when he came closer to the light, he got bigger, and when he yeah. turned, and then he'd go back, and it was a good smaller. trick, Tony. And, I, and 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 people came up to me after because there were theater people loved this. I mean, there were people that kept coming back, but they were just like. People were just like laughing, just like the effect was. I said, it's a turntable with a piece of shirt cardboard cut out of a saxophone player that I made with a bat light from a desk lamp. It's so smart, though, and it's so creative. It's amazing. So, like, <laughs> was Amy work? So, when you, you're doing, you did Die, Strip, or Die, you know, it was the play, you turned it into review. Yeah. You start to realize that the nightlife in New York is hungry for this. People are into it. People are finding you. Like-minded people are coming together. When did you decide, like, was Dutch Wiseman's as a character introduced in Die, Strip, or Die, or was he a spinoff of Die, Strip, or Die? In Die, Strip, or Die, there was a character of Dutch Wiseman. And I used it in the Backers audition, but then I dropped it. And I called the first illegal club Dutch Wiseman's. And... That was uh, 23rd Street. Mm -hmm. So it became Dutch Wiseman's. At 23rd Street, it was Dutch Wiseman's. Uh, 23rd Street was Dutch Wiseman's speakeasy, and 18th Street was Dutch Wiseman's nightclub. And um, and by then, he was a character. Michael Musto came yes, one night. I remember. And did, and did not want to be there. Could, could have cared less. And... Um, he really attitude. And <laughs> too cool for school. So, way too cool. And Beck said, you need to talk to him. He was our publicist, Beck Lee. Beck Lee, yeah. And I was like, so? And he said, no, really, go to him. And, and I went over and Musto said, I, I want to talk to Dutch Weissman. And I said, well, he's not here. He goes, oh, well, I want to talk to him. And Bob Gregory said, come here a second. He said, him on the house phone in like one minute. I went, why? He said, just do it. So Bob took an empty cigarette cellophane pack. I brought Michael's phone and I said, actually, Mr. Wiseman has just called and he wants to talk to you. So what Musto heard is, uh, hello, is this Michael? Yes, it is. This is Dutch Wiseman. I'm, uh, I'm in Paris right now. Oh my God, stop it. Connection. Yeah, so he did that. And but so, like the whole idea of Dutch Wiseman, for people who don't know, is like these reviews were built around the stories of Dutch Wiseman, the experience of Dutch Wiseman, like the wives of Dutch Wiseman, <laughs> like yeah. every review. And you create it, you and Amy create it, yeah, different it, reviews, yeah. every couple of, I felt like we changed it like at least four times a year, we would change the show. Angie, we would change numbers out every 
weekend if somebody had an idea. Oh, I, mean, I remember was, some of those changes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, um, it was, yeah. Um, let me tell you one more quick celebrity one. One night, Beck calls and he goes, you have to come right now. Come to the door. Come to the door. And I said, I'm upstate. Come to the door. And I went. It was Steven Spielberg with two other guys. And they were in baseball caps and, and baseball jackets. And Beck said, I explained that there's a dress code at Wise. And Spielberg said, do you know who I am? And I said, no, who are you? And Beck was like, I'm Steven. I was like, shut up. I said, actually, no. I said, you look familiar. He said, my name is Steven Spielberg. And I'm like, oh, you're that director. Yes, of course I know who you are. And he said, this man won't let me in. And I said, we have a dress code. And I can't let you in. Not with a baseball hat. Come on. Yeah. And I said, Mr. Wiseman, it's a rule, Mr. Wiseman. I want to talk to Mr. Wiseman. I said, he's in Azerbaijan. I just got to tell us. He's in Azerbaijan with three geisha girls, two colobus monkeys, a gallon of Greek olive oil, and eight pool balls. (laughs) And he went, what the fuck did you just say to me? I said, eight pool balls. And he went, wait a minute. When does the show start? I said, about half an hour. 40 minutes. He said, will you hold the curtain for about 45 minutes? And I said, yes. Fine. They came back about 50 minutes later. No, and, they didn't. And I saw them walk in and I looked at Spielberg and I went, the suit, done And he went, yes, a matter of fact. And I said, the tie, Hermes. And he goes, yes. And I said, and the shoes, Church's English Winters. Now I understand why you were Mr. White. And I said, let Beck show your tea table. Yeah, so they stayed and loved it. And we laughed, laughed. So people, yeah, people just came because there was nothing like it. And it was, you've said it a couple of times. Historically, the, the, I, I, I was so blessed that the people, performers that were in the show, did their own research and said, I want, can we stage this number and can we make a costume that would, like yeah. Jenna. Jenna was actually, she wasn't Japanese, but she was a real geisha girl. She was a trained geisha. So that's when we did Yokohama Mama, mm-hmm. which had nothing to do with geisha. But, um, but you know, people brought their, people brought their juju with them. And and that's why you did. How could you believe, believe me, me when I, I said, said I loved you? When you know I've been a liar all my life. life. I had that reputation <laughs> since I was a youth. Oh my God! Please, <laughs> no. Well, I remember when I came. I was like, Michael. I mean, you. I, and Michael, oh yeah, was, we had so much fun. But I felt like I finally found the place where I could do what my dream of being a performer and being an actress. Like I was going to all these lame auditions. And when I went to Wiseman, I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is, this is exactly it. I found it at 18. I'm done. <laughs> I got 18 it. 18 in an illegal strip joint burlesque club bar with alcohol. And God, did we laugh. Oh, none of that ever occurred to me. It's like, I, I really remember when I, it, you know, it's funny because you say burlesque and you just like stripping and all this, but I felt like such an innocence about it that I didn't stop and think for one second that there was anything, like, crazy going on. I invited my parents. I was like, 
Woo-hoo! I got it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of those kids brought their parents. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of families because it was, the thing of it is, it was fun. Oh, yeah. And it, it was, was a family affair. I mean, we became a yeah. family. Like you talk about, yeah. I remember after we moved above the Harvey, what was that, on 23rd Street? That was 18th. That was 18th Street. I always reverse them. I remember, you know, we were running for a while and some things happened and people disappeared and shit got crazy. And I remember there was a point where it was like, okay, well, if we want to do the show tonight, we're going to have to clean the bathrooms and like set up the room ourselves. And every dancer, every stagehand, the light guy who was from Broadway was like, okay, yeah. Let's go. And every we were the showgirls were scrubbing the toilets because everybody I, wanted the show to go on. Everybody wanted And nobody show. was bitching about it. It was like let's no. make it happen because it was a, a passion project and a family affair. Uh Chicago Sheila Champagne and Michael Garrett doing Waiting for the Robert E. Lee. Oh my gosh, that's right. Waiting for the Robert E. Lee. Um, and when I showed her the costume that night, she had come from L.A., and it was a tablecloth apron and a, and a plaid check thing for it. It was Aunt Jemima, and she saw that costume because she had rehearsed the number. She saw that costume, and she came up, she held the costume up, and she goes, is this my costume? Be careful. Be careful what you say. <laughs> Charmaine! Is this my motherfucking costume that you want me to wear on stage in front of people? Yes or no? And I went, you are so talented, you could wear a table. I mean, and she goes, this is a fucking tablecloth that you want me to wear. And she did it. And she did it. And Michael with the cake is like, ah, you know, who do you think you are coming into my world? And then she sang the old black blues and Stephen Stucker wrote and and we and then that melted into Amy and Charmaine doing the scene from Imitation of Life. You're yes. not my mother, but I am, John. I am your mother. No, you're not. I hate you. Don't say that, child. And then she'd come out at two, you know, two, three pieces later and do Angel Eyes, and people would weep. Oh, she was amazing. Charmaine Manseal. She was a singer from uh, California, Los Angeles, and you knew her from when you lived in L.A. I met her when Stephen Stucker, who I lived with for 10 years, was uh, doing theater at USC with John Blankenship, and Charmaine was in that theater, that gang of graduates at USC, and she had gone on to Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yeah. And, and eventually, after Wiseman closed, she went back to the Fringe Festival with the show that we started at Wiseman, the Ethel Waters story. Yep. And she took that to Edinburgh. Because once the Wiseman Club, was it the club or the speakeasy at this point on 18th Street? It was the speakeasy. When it was yeah. legit. We went legit, right? Well, club, yeah. Well, I had a beer and wine license. But yes. But you, we, you started to do different shows. So we would do the review, our review, but then there would be other shows. Like, you were working to turn it into a legitimate, yeah. you know, seven nights a week a club with tons of shows. The swing scene was coming up around the city. And so that's when you launched, I know, Charmaine's show launched at that time. 
There were a couple other things that were happening. And then I remember the swing kids would come. Like Luigi, Luigi Scorcha would come and promote it and like do after parties afterwards. And they would come and have these swing nights and these crazy parties. It was the place to be. It was, it was, it would go on until four o'clock in the morning on the weekend. Yeah. I mean, it was, it went on until four o'clock. But it was just everybody was. dancing and having fun and enjoying the show. I remember, I remember some crazy New Year's Eve nights. Like, it was wild. God, the couple that stripped on the bar when she stripped on the bar, and I mean, it was people with this woman that Parker, uh, the uh, Parker Meridian Hotel booked a couple from D.C. And late, late at night, I mean, like, this is 3 o'clock in the morning. She's sitting on a bar stool and eased up on the bar. And she's sitting on the bar and her boyfriend. Everyone's in tuxedos and gowns. I mean, it was, that was New Year's Eve at Wiseman. And she dropped the shoulder and people are like, yeah. And she kind of scooched <laughs> up a little farther on the bar. And she dropped it, yeah. And I was so far back, I couldn't get to her. And she stands up and starts to unzip her dress and it was like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i was trying to get through her point her husband loosens his tie and he scooches up on the bar and he's kind of and her dress comes off she's got a slip on and she pulls his shirt open and he's got to undo his pants and people are screaming and i could not get through the crowd to stop them and she finally the slips off and his hose and panties and a bra uh. and boxer shorts his pants around his ankles. He's got a, a his shirt still on, and I dove through the crowd and stopped him. It's like you cannot do this. Stop! And people were cheering. Oh yeah, and <laughs> that they were stopping or that they were doing it. <laughs> that they were doing it, and they both got dressed. And the guy comes over, and he gave me five hundred bucks, and he goes, "That worked out better than I thought it did." And I said, "You're a wise man, of course." They paid me five hundred bucks to do that. That's they can come back again and again. Oh yeah. Did yeah. you feel but that Tony, was the kind of stuff that could happen? Oh yeah, no, and it was good. It was like fun, organic nights, you know. But do you feel so? Dutch Wiseman's when it first started running, it's running in the loft. It's completely illegal, completely amazing. There's an insane <laughs> response from this. I mean, it was packed. Every night was packed. It was like walking into a magical wonderland, and I feel like. It's the 90s. It was a different time. You really could not get away with that now. I feel like with social media oh, and the way that the city no. is, you could never oh, get no. away with that. It was magic. You know, I talked with friends of mine in L.A. back before I came because I had worked for Nicholson. I worked for Warren Beatty. I worked for the Smothers Brothers when I worked for Melnick. And what we didn't realize then in the film industry and TV back in the, the late 80s, was we did not realize we were living the end of the golden age. Right. Because that's what independence came in and everything changed. The studios, MGM, we had all worked on, on you know, sets, wardrobe, whatever it was, in the big studio productions. We didn't realize that was ending. And when we were doing Wiseman, we didn't realize that New York was changing and very soon, that was going to end. Things were going to get rougher and tougher with cops, with with some of the danger on the street, with some of the the just the crime got way different than and and 
9-11 changed For it sure. even more where all of a sudden now it's it's now the world is dangerous. Yeah, no, and it was a different time. And it was the perfect time. we do it now? No. Do you yeah. feel like um, when 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 you guys moved to the club, you know, when it went moderately legit with the beer and the beer and wine license, did you feel like it lost some of the magic that it had in the loft? Did you feel like putting it in a legitimate space? And I, the space that we moved to, oh my lord, it was gorgeous. You walked up those gorgeous stairs. There was that big room, the waiting room for the show with the round benches and the piano in the back that Bonnie Dunn would come and sing at. That's where I met Bonnie Dunn and Michael Garin would play on there after shows. And there was that beautiful Victorian bar in the back that the two girls that I cannot remember their names, they were bartenders and they would sing and like, this was just the waiting room. And then you would go into the showroom, which was even more glorious, and we were all amazing. There were God two knows. fireplaces. Yes, there were fireplaces that worked. Crystal chandeliers hanging out of tin ceilings, mahogany wainscoting. It was amazing. You know, it was amazing. It was, it was, yeah. Um, what made you want to make them? I mean, I get why you would want to make the move, but were you trying to make it more legitimate? Did you have like a, a broader No, I was vision? evicted. I was evicted. Oh, okay. I was evicted out of the Chinese place. Don't remember and that. That, place, <laughs> that 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 eighteenth street was eight thousand dollars a month. That's insane. And, and that's twenty eight years ago. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so where did that money come from? I have no idea. I know that there was an angel, and I know who it was. But we lasted from. I think we went. October, November, December, January, February. I think we did five months there. And that $8,000 a month was for rent. But then the owner who also owned owned the big uh, performance arena up on the Upper West Side. I can't think of that. It was kind of a rock and roll place. Upper West. Uh, a theater, like 900 seats. Uh, huh. I can't think of it. Owned this building. Oh, really? Okay. We were, you know, the building. And so I was like, you know, why don't we go in business together? Why don't we go in partners? And I was, you're illegal. You're doing strip teams. You're illegal. And you're just, you're going to be put in prison. I'm not going to be your partner. Will you just give me one more month free rent? <laughs> one more month rent free. No, I'm not going to. I'll, 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 I'll set you up with five girls and a bottle of, uh, a bottle of Greek olive oil and, and some ping pong balls and, and he's like you're out of your fucking yes okay take the most rent but then you have to leave like, okay thank you <laughs> well it was funny too because at this point we had always gotten press but I remember there hit a certain point where we were getting a lot of press we were like the New York Times and the Daily News and it was like Dutch wise Sunday Telegraph yes Italian Vogue French Vogue German Vogue yes Ellen Von Unworth the photo shoot with Ellen Von Unworth Von Unworth Um, and Deborah Turbeville did a photo shoot and Chip DeFock kept putting us in the post yes Um, but I couldn't stay open I couldn't stay afloat uh, financially and there was a point I mean I'm saying this I know people can hear this but there was a point that Amy said to me, 
You have to stop. You have to stop. And I said, I can't. My God. Can I tell you? Let me tell you two things. Because of what we're doing. Bob Greger and I have been talking. Of course we talk. We've known each other for 30 years. But I've written a film script of Wiseman's. I've written a TV series about Wiseman's. I'm in episode four, and that one's called Nightclub 57. And it's Dutch Wiseman's in 1957. And I've got three episodes of that. I've got a full film script. I mean, I've got a theater script, all this stuff. Different versions of it. And the, the cable series, which was going to be pitched last March. Great timing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in New York. I was, Bob was helping me with that. Well, so Bob said, as we've been talking about this, he's read, I've done readings in Chicago of the first three episodes. I've done like five readings. And it's not what you think. It's Dutch Wiseman's Nightclub in 57, but it's not quite what you think. It's not, it's a drama. It's rough. It's dark. It is Wiseman's. A lot of it's in the theater. Uh, there are some things that happen that are very untoward. And at one point, I will just say this. It flips toward World War II espionage. Oh. So it's, it's very, yeah, it's dark. It's not just like girls in burlesque and comics and that. It's, there's, there's some shit that happens. Well, they work well together. Uh, yeah. And, but Bob said, what we need to do when this COVID thing ends, he said, and I'm saying, we've talked about this a number of times, is he said, I want to get together the Wisemans, and I want to do on-camera interviews. I want to do basically a reunion, and I want individual interviews on camera, because he said there are so many stories that you and I don't remember. Yes. That some people have that other people don't remember. He said, and he said, and I want to pitch that as a pre-Wiseman pitch documentary. He said, I really want to push it for whether it's a Netflix and Amazon or whatever it is, because I have probably 50 hours of video that is 30 years old. That's amazing. So it's kind of grainy. I know. I found some a couple of years ago myself. You know, some's good, some's bad. But he's got it. He'll be editing that. But he said, I want to put together a documentary of Wiseman. Um, he said, you know, and Amy said too, she said, no, let's start building this. Let's start building this so that we can start gathering, you know, Ale, uh, 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 Garen, Marty Millet has to be in this. Yeah. Even though, I mean, she's Wiseman. Um, Charmaine has to be. I mean, like, those of us, because Tente died, Bobby yeah. died, you know, there's some, there's, we lost some people. We've lost some people. Yeah. Um, it's not, it was just when Bonnie died that shook me up bad. Oh, Bonnie Tente passed. Died. Well, Tente died tragically young. Tente was a dancer in the show and he died. I mean, Tente was probably like in his late 20s, early 30s when he died. Um, that's how old he was. Yeah. And Bonnie, that was tragic as well. But I mean, you look at somebody like Bonnie too, it's like another epic, uh, figure in the neo burlesque revival in New York. And one thing I always loved about Bonnie is like, she loved Dutch Wiseman's. She would come there constantly, tell everyone about it. It was not a thing of like, Oh, competing burlesque elements. It no, was no, just no. like, let's all help each other. And Bonnie's show was so different as well. And this is why I always say Wiseman's was the first 
choreographed, structured, beautifully presented. This was a review. There's never been anything yeah. like it. Ellen von Unworth, when she came, and she, uh, Caliardos were on her. Yes. Of course it would be him. Um, she saw the show, and um, afterwards she said, the only thing that I can compare this to was the French Review. In New York, it was Hell's a Poppin. And in Paris, it was, I can't think of the name of it. But she said, Hell's a Poppin, and I just blanked on what it was. And I went, I said, you're the only person who said that. You're the only person that's recognized that. She said, this show should be played in Paris, in Lisbon, in Madrid, in London. She said, she said, this should be playing there. This is that. Can I photograph it for Vogue, for Italian Vogue? Like, what? Can I photograph it for Italian Vogue? Like, and how awesome that? was mean, that? Yeah, like, yeah. And they yeah, used all of kids. us. They didn't bring in a ta- like girl models. They used all of us. And we no, were just yeah, a hodgepodge they, of shorties. <laughs> like, you know? Like, no, because they knew. They knew that they better use the real deal. It was and the real eight, deal. 18 pages, 50,000 bucks a page is what that went for. Oh, I still I have that. I was just looking. I've got, I mean, I, I'm tethered to my computer because of this. But, I mean, I've got photographs and books all over the place. I don't have anything right near me. But, yeah, 18 pages in Italian Vogue. Uh, and Brad Pitt was the cover. It was, yeah. It was January of 1996. Wow, that's so crazy. My Lord in heaven. So you have um, you have to do this documentary project, Tony, because you know I, Dutch Wiseman's was so so impactful, and I have talked to people that I've interviewed with this podcast that say how it influenced them. Like Kate Valentine, really? Miss Astrid came to see it, and then she went back to LA and she started the Vava Voom Room because it inspired her right. to get into burlesque. So there were I know Dirty Martini saw it. You know, it's like. I, I know it influenced so many people in Bonnie and I feel like because it ended a bit early, um, you know, it, it misses some of the ticker tape parade that it should have for the fundamental work that it did in helping to establish the burlesque scene. If not for nothing, but for the press. I mean, we got so much press in those early mid nineties before anybody was using the word burlesque, you know, before the village yeah. voice did their expose on burlesque. It was like, these these writers were coming to the show and sh- basically shitting their pants, you know? Why well, relay the groundwork and, 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 and grease the skids? Simultaneously, Billy was doing her show at a place over by the waterfront. She kind of popped off mm-hmm. and did hers. You know, and things started popping. Um, and and Slipper Room started and Hammerstein's Ballroom started and 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 now there's that play, Dwayne Street, you know. Yeah, now. Dwayne Park. Mm-hmm. Dwayne Park. But I mean, Wiseman started in '91. It's crazy. It started in '91, and that's almost 30 years ago. Do you feel yeah. any tie to the neo revival and what's happened between then and now within that? No, not at all. I'm completely out of touch with it. Um, I have been working very, very hard for the last 10 years on a theater script on a film script and especially this cable series and i am i am not just dedicated i am committed and 
have, like I said, I've done readings of all three different versions, the cable series being the most uh, important because now cable is everything. Absolutely. And I've written this so specifically for cable. Um, six episodes that will end on a brutal cliffhanger. But, you know, I mean, there's a there's a death in there that's very brutal. There's there's some threatening scenes. There's, there's, there, Dutch Wiseman, we find out, has fathered a child. Is this supposed to be about. shocking? <laughs> <laughs> like because many? I remember the old scripts, and I just assumed he fathered a lot of children. <laughs> he, he very possibly may. I have... I have a couple of episodes left to rewrite. Um, but all your all your writing was always very riveting. And even if it was just a five-minute scene, I remember Ale coming out and with the cigarette and the trench coat and uh, the automat scene. And I remember my line from the little Egypt scene. And I remember, you know, so many, the, the tap dancer scene uh, that Kim did with Michael, like, but every scene, whether it was, uh, you know, four yeah. minutes or seven minutes, it encapsulated every bit of imagery and um, iconic kind of reference that you could hit. Like, so it would be no surprise to me that you could put this into this script for this pitch. Yeah, and it's 57 in L.A. because the film industry is there. So this is Wiseman and the film industry and the TV industry crashing into each other. And... Um, good characters. Um, I talked to a, I, when I was talking with a friend of mine who's a, uh, uh, writer in New York, uh, I mean in Chicago, she said, who would you cast in them? Because these are such rich characters. Who would you cast? And I said, Angie, Michael, I was going to say, don't you age us out. Like they tried to do with that new dynasty because I want to be sitting here. Like I have been waiting for Dutch Wisens to come back. <laughs> I'm taking care of myself. I got the collagen shake. I'm, you know, watching, I got it. I I'm got sleeping it. good. <laughs> Me and Michael no, I, Garen will get in a car and come out to LA. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing of it is, if she goes, I have no idea who you're talking about. And I said, the original, this is the original wife. Well, no one's heard of them. I said, they will after episode one. You know, I feel like the magic of the characters gelling is so much of what really helped us in that point in time. Like, we did things that you couldn't have done if it was just random dancers, people who had no investment in the art and, and in the action. You know, how did you meet Michael Guerin? Michael was the host of the show, and he was, like, the quintessential character. How did you meet Matt him? Matt Berman. Um, My memories are so terrible. My brain. There were a couple of hosts that were just not right early on, but that's when Amy's headdresses were made of shredded paper towels, and, and her necklaces and diamonds were made of, of literally. I'd get a hammer and break mirrors to make diamond <laughs> necklaces. Um, so we went through a couple of incarnations to get to the point where you and Michelle, Michelle and that bed number. for Oh God, that bed number. That was like rotating and on a slant. That was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, there was a lot of unique, everything about it was unique. Whether it was the costumes, the headdresses, the, the moving sets on a 12 foot stage. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the lighting effects with number 10 soup cans. Yes. 
you know, spotlight from the grocery store. But I remember but we got the lighting guy from Broadway, because I remember I dated him for a little bit, but he used to come after he would close his show on Broadway. Yeah. And Oh, no, he was the sound guy. He was the sound guy. <laughs> but Earl, Earl Mays came there. Yes. The Marcellus Brothers came there. Yes. Uh, Sandra Bernhardt came oh, there. Oh, I remember that. No, there oh, were so many celebrities that would come in and out. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, um, but it was, the, the, the reason that it worked was because everybody involved cut their juju loose to do what it was that they did. Yeah. And, and when you're cut loose to do your, you know, when, when, when your psyche can open up, when your creative unconscious can open up and, and pour out your creativity. And that's what everyone did because it was, it's not like, oh, we'll do this and then the budget for that costume is going to be $4,000. So it's like the budget for that costume, I think I can pull like $8 together. Yeah. You know, so we'll use chopsticks some tin foil and, you know, a couple of, Potato sacks spray painted black and make it happen. But I also think one of the other magics there that was especially for me, like I was, I really was a child. It's insane to me. Like if I have a babysitter who's eighteen for Cecilia, my daughter, I call my neighbors and I'm like, "There's a kid watching sis tonight. Can you keep an eye out?" But like here I am, like woohoo! So, but for myself, one of the things that I will always take away from that experience is like. I felt like, you know, you believed in me, uh, Michael believed in me, Amy believed in me, and through that energy of, no, oh yeah, you can sing a song and do this dance number, you'll be great. Oh, you're hilarious, you can do this, whereas I never was like, I'm funny, I can sing and dance. Like, that belief though, and then just somebody being like, yes, you can do it, here are the tools, go do it. That was like an instrumental thing in my life, and I think that stands for a lot of the people who were in the cast. It was it was my background in theater from the time I was eight, and I've never left. Like my father said, "Kid, I fucked you for life." <laughs> he did because I've never left, and I have pretty much a a uh, uh, wide ranging knowledge of the history of. And being able to recognize, it's a Pygmalion complex I have, that you can do this because I see you doing it. And all we have to do is this and this and this, and then you can cut loose and do it. Now tell me tell me about this. Tell me about you. You're the queen now. Oh, yeah. What's I don't know on? about that. <laughs> no, you are. Everything I know I learned from you, Tony. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Oh, you know what? For me, it was right place, right time. Like when Dutch Wiseman's closed, I was adrift. I was so sad. Um, and the scene was still just rising up so much around me. And I was nicely poised in the right place. I had the knowledge that I had and the ability to do what I did. So, you know, timing is everything. Yeah. You got to have now, the talent I mean, have, to back it up, of course. But timing is a huge part of it. You have to have that. And you have to have the experience. You have to have the life you know, the life power and the life energy to do that. You've got this gorgeous child. How old is she? She's five. It's a lot of life energy. <laughs> oh my God. Five. I know. I know. 
I know. Well, I want to talk about the closing of Dutch Wiseman because these are some of my burning. Okay. Yeah. So I think about, um, and we won't say names, but there were different people who were involved. I thought they were investors. I don't know what they were. I was so ignorant in this time in my life, which I think is hilarious because I just do. But you know, like I never batted an eye at any of the situations that we were ever in. It was always a safe space for me. Um, but then I just remember like certain people left the country. Somebody fell out of a window. Do you remember the guy that yeah. fell out of the window? That guy, Michael, yeah. that used to hang around, he fell out of a window. Like, weird yeah. things started happening. And then it was like, we're cleaning the bathrooms. And then it kind of ended rather abruptly. Do you have any comments on that? <laughs> there was a point that, there was a point that, that shit really shifted. And one of the things that happened was one night, when I say shifted, I mean really shifted. Yes. Beck came to me and said, there's someone at the, the, at the, at 18th street, the Lucchese grandsons, the Gambino grandsons, those boys hung out there. Yes, I know. That's why I'm shocked at myself. I should have recognized this. My God. Right? (laughs) Those boys, they were there. And when they'd come in, they'd be, I'd be like, Edie, Tommy, it's great to see you. Dutch, great to see you. Check the heat. You got to put the guns in the safe. No, no, we'll be, you got to put the guns in the safe. I don't need a fucking real liquor license. So they'd put the guns in the safe. But one night, Beck said, you have to come right now to the door. And it was an older man. And, um, a trophy blind. And good evening, can I help you? And Beck said, This is, and I said, I know who you are. And he said, Are you going to let me in? And it was Capo, it was him, the godfather of the Lucchese family. And I said, I know who you are. And he said, Are you going to let me in? And not only am I going to let you in, I'm going to buy you champagne over. Yeah. Right? And he left. He said, you don't have to do that. And I said, absolutely. I said, are you kidding me? I said, you know, you're you're part of the history that I'm trying to recreate. They stayed. He came up to me after. What a great night. What great fun. Just so much fun. I said, thank you. He said, you can't be making any money. And I said, I'm doing fine. He said, well, I'm going to come back. I want to bring something back. I said, absolutely. And when we shook hands, he put something in my hand. Oh, no. I started to pull back, but he held my hand. He said, keep it. And they left. It was $500. A week later, my buzzer and, Hello? Um, Dutch Wiseman? Mr. Wiseman is in Azerbaijan. With, he goes, I know the bullshit line. He goes, you're, you're the guy with the beard. Who are you? And I said, my name's Tony. He said, Yes, I said, I, I, uh, let me up. I, I need to talk to him. I want to talk to you about something about the show. He went, okay. The guy comes in, beautiful suit, Vuitton briefcase. And he looks and goes, this is really cool. I said, thank you. I said, who are you? He said, I think I might have a business proposition. Uh uh-uh. And I said, That'd be interesting. I said, from? He said, 
you met a friend of mine? And I went, I said, are there cameras? I said, he goes, no, this is real. He said, this is real. And we're sitting and talking. We both lit a cigarette. And just chatting about the shows and how enjoyable the show is. And he turned the briefcase around and unclipped it and opened it up. It was a movie. It was full cash. Totally macaroni. And I looked and I said, I had no idea there was a sense like this. And he said, money has its own sense. And I closed the briefcase and locked it. I said, not money, we time. And I turned the briefcase back around and I pushed it back. And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. He said, why not? And I said, I've worked so hard for this. And so many people have worked so hard. I said, I have to make this work on my own to know that it is going to work, that I can do this. And if I fail, I have to fail on my own. I said, but I cannot do that. And he said, what if you had no choice? What if someone just moved in for some after hours entertainment and the show? And I said, if I pull the show, Take over my lease. Knock yourself out. Yeah, have fun. I said, if I pull, if I pull the costume, the shows, and the girls, let's hear. You got a couple of fireplaces, a bar, tin ceilings, and chandelier. I said, I have to do this on my own. This is a life journey for me to either succeed or fail. And he said, but you're failing. I said, financially. I'm not failing creatively. And I said, and that's just as important. Well, some of those guys came back. The offer was made a couple of times, not quite as aggressively. And at that point, I realized we weren't getting the audiences. I was running out of money to keep it going. Um, the rent really was brutal. And you can't run that kind of gig eight nights a month. Uh, I'd have to pull in a thousand bucks a night in just audience and drinks to do Friday and Saturday nights. And there was a point there that the guy who owned the building, the landlord who also owned the theater up on the Upper West Side, uh, he said, you can either move out or I'm going to evict you and I'll have paper served by the sheriff. I said, I get it. I get it. I said, I can't afford it. I said, but you don't have to do papers. You don't have to serve me. I said, I can. I said, it's time for me to bail. I said, because I'm just, I'm tired. Yeah. And there was a point that I had done. Everybody else started to pick up the vibe and do it. I was exhausted from doing it, from trying to keep the energy, trying to keep the shows. Well, so you you were like the cheerleader too. You were always up, always ready, always with the energy. Yeah, yeah. And there was just a point that I I had run out of energy, and I I took the club apart, and um, and I left New York. Um, and it almost killed me. Um, and it took me a couple of years to recover, <coughs> pardon me, um, mentally. Um, I worked for a marketing company and I did marketing for Star Wars, Star Trek. I did, I did hardcore marketing for the products from a very big company that hired me. And so I did that. Um, I got involved in theater. I taught high school theater here 
Who's um, easier to work with, high school kids or young adults? <laughs> Wild and loose in the city. <laughs> it was uh, equal challenge. I'm sure. I took a theater. That high school has 2,000 kids in it. There were 12 kids in the theater, and they would get audiences of 25 people two nights because the guy who ran it was just a drunk and loud. I was asked to take it over by the principal. I took it to 70 kids, eight performances, 150 people a night, and I did, I taught them how to act literature to the stage, and I wrote and directed and designed and built Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Dracula in Paris. And I Amazing. Did. So I did that. I did theater. Um, I kept writing the whole time. I kept doing Wiseman the whole time. Good. I kept at Wiseman. Um, I sent you that thing about the window that I did. Yes, yeah, you um, Dressing windows, and, making them look fabulous with old costumes. So you're still creating. You're always creating. It's just what you do, and you have to because – I don't care if it takes 40 years. There's something there with Wiseman's. Like, are you, do you ever feel like the timing was off? Like, had it been like, uh, you know, a little bit yeah. later, it would have been a different yeah. scene. So many people told me, so many people, so many theater people told me, so many nightclub people told me, so many businessmen told me, you're 20 years too early. With yeah, that. it you're was a bit 20 too years early. too early for the level that you, we see what you're doing. You're doing, you are doing production numbers from 20th Century Fox and MGM musicals on a 12-foot wide stage on no budget. And it's fabulous. It was amazing. We didn't need a budget. But, you, but they said, but, you know, you've never had the budget to do what is in your head. And it's like, I haven't. And so that's why I'm writing the series, um, is to finally at least get it out. Um, and to do those numbers and to, um, you know, stage, uh, I probably won't direct it. Um, I will probably end up more like showrunner to kind of oversee, produce. But um, I want to recreate the world that we never got the chance to for real. Um, and meanwhile, I keep busy doing, you know, this tomorrow I'm doing the window for the resale for the Christmas window. And she said that Jan was the owner. She said, um, what is the Christmas window going to be? And I said, anything. She goes, are you kidding after what you've done? What? And I said, it's going to be a pretty much red burlesque. Yes. Bordello. See, Bordello. Yeah. Well, Tony, <laughs> re Tony designed a window for a store in Indiana that like he just walked into the lady and said, can I do your window? And she said, yes. And then, of course, it ended up in a newspaper article in the paper, and it's the talk of the town. <laughs> it kind of I, is I love it. But, Tony, I think one thing, like, you know, you talk about your project now, and we say Dutch Wiseman's was ahead of the time, but I don't think, I mean, it was in a sense, but also I think it had to be there to help set up the trajectory of burlesque and this change in entertainment yeah. in New York that people wanted to see. But maybe now, you know, because burlesque has never been ready for TV. It's like everybody freaks out. Maybe Wiseman can be the first to bring it to that place where we can get a show yeah. that has burlesque roots and it has the structure and the content and the stories and the engagement. You could be the person to bring that to television. Well, I'm counting on that. I have a couple of people who are willing to throw it with me. The other thing to kind of 
overlay everything we said. What Wiseman was and what what the performers, and there have been like 50, 60 performers through there then, it wasn't just burlesque. We were recreating, like I said, numbers from MGM musicals, from Foley's Berger, from Lido de Paris, from Crazy Horse. You know, we were recreating um, uh, musical comedy numbers from Broadway shows on a 12-foot wide stage with five people and no budget. Which makes it burlesque. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, you won. Yeah. I mean, burlesque is actually, yes, yes. I just don't want people to think that burlesque is only striptease because it isn't. No, gosh, no. Well, and that was one of the things that I think when you talked about how everybody who came there, even if they didn't know what the hell was going on, you learned because it was like a resource library. I remember watching VHS tapes of the night they raided at Minsky's. Like after a rehearsal, we would all sit down and like drink coffee and watch old movies and get ideas and get so excited yeah. about these numbers that we were going to do. So you also taught people, which makes it the difference between just hiring dancers and being like here's the choreography it's like this is an immersive experience you are now a member of the cult (laughs) well you came from a background you did events you did production you grew up in the theater you ended up moving to la with your parents right was didn't your dad like did this crate like he worked for bob hope i just remember all your crazy stories like he worked bob hope he worked my he did makeup and and styling for Hope for over 20 years, but he also would get called in to do uh, the Rat Pack. Yeah. He'd have to fly to Vegas for, for, because they were doing a special, they were doing a kind of TV taping, and my father, who was an Emmy nominee because of makeup and stuff, uh, they'd call my father in uh, to do the makeup, and I got to meet them uh, and kind of hang out, which was another <laughs> great story. Um, but... Uh, he worked for them. He worked for um, uh, um, uh, Leslie Nielsen. He did. Bob Goulet was a family friend. That's amazing. Uh, Truman Capote would come over to the house. Um, he did Nixon. He had White House clearance. He had CIA clearance because he did Nixon. He did Ford. He did um, Reagan. He did Nancy Reagan. He flew on Air Force One because of hope. You've always so, lived I mean, a colorful those- life. <laughs> And I'm living back in Mishawaka, Indiana. Yeah, but it doesn't matter where you live. It's what's inside of you. Yeah, well, I'm doing a, a Christmas burlesque bordello window for a pet. That's know, right. For, you shake uh, it up, Tony. And you're going to write that <laughs> script. And you're going to get this show on because I'm, I want to do it. I really. It's like I've everything I've done. And like I said, I have done a lot at this point. I'm always like, man, that was the best show that I was ever in. And I oh, appreciated every you, moment you. of it. I really did. Like, I'm like. I don't remember it all, (laughs) but like, I know it was a lot, but it was so amazing. And I'm so thankful for you. You have fundamentally shaped my life. And that's true. That's true. And I know it's not just for (laughs) me. Tony, I know we talked about what's next for you. So you've got to write this. You've got to get this screenplay. Tell me how I can help deal me in. Um, But like for where we are right now, in the world, well, not right now with COVID. We'll just leave that out of this joyful conversation. But where burlesque is right now, the renaissance of it, the revival of it, is there something within that that like you would like to be remembered for or thought of in association with? I guess it's, it's bumping into the opportunity because it was bumping into the opportunity to relight the fire 
so that so many performers who would be auditioning for Broadway shows, auditioning for films, auditioning for commercials, and not and having to live that horrible life of living audition to audition, were able to say, fuck that shit, I can do this and make it a living at it. And whether it's musicians, whether it's girls, whether it's costumers, whether it's lighting people that have over the last 29 years created careers and lives and lifestyles and been able to afford to follow their passion and their dream because I was given the opportunity to make headdresses out of paper towels and work <laughs> with this group of you know brilliant lunatics who said, fuck it, let's just go for it. And everybody did. And, and how many people were able to follow us and, and make their career and their lifestyle of it. And I say, God bless everybody that threw caution to the wind and did it and are still doing it. Yeah. You know, that's, a, I think, a big part of why I was able to <laughs> evade, evade prison from two very serious raids. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I always laugh because I'm like, you know, you read about burlesque in the 40s and the 50s and the nightclubs in the 40s and the 50s. And, you know, we lived it in the 90s. I wasn't aware of it because I was a ding dong. But when I think about it, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Couldn't have been yeah. more real deal than that. It was pretty real. It was awesome. Tony, thank you so much for being here today. I am so excited for people to hear your voice and your stories and learn more about Dutch Wiseman. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No. We're not done. No. We're not done. Please, please, please. I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're not done. Because I couldn't do this next big one alone, believe me. Uh, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Understand my language. Um, Thank you so jo- much. Johnny Darling is back. <laughs> that was my name. <laughs> Do you remember? That was my it name was. in the show. We all had those names. I was Johnny Darling. Johnny Darling. Typecast. <laughs> that was it. Everybody had characters to live. That was it. Yeah. We had characters, okay. but we were so much of ourselves, too. Was... Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Showbiz. <laughs> I know. Our life. I know. It was good. Oh, thank you so much, Tony. I do love you. Thank you. And that conversation is definitely going to need a part two. And all I can say is HBO, are you listening? Netflix, can you hear me? The elusive Dutch Wiseman is not on Instagram, but you can find him on Facebook at Dutch Wiseman. And you know where to find me right on Instagram at Angie Fontani. In other news, The Bump and Grind is winding up our first season. That's right. It's break time for AP and my amazing team at Giant Panda King. But fear not. We've got more episodes in the tank to take you through to 2021, but then I'll be resting and researching and whipping up a new season to launch in the spring of 2021. I want to thank everyone who has been supporting the show and encourage you to keep it up. If you haven't, follow us, give us hearts and stars and positive reviews, share our episodes with your friends and the burlesque lovers in your life, and until next week, shimmy onwards. This has been a Giant Panda King production. You can find us at giantpandaking.com and on Instagram at giantpandaking.